Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to the podcast. It's episode 424 for September 22nd, 2021. Our guest today is Balaji Reddy. He's the founder of the Deming Forum India. An engineer by trade, Balaji was exposed to W. Edwards Deming's ideas through his father. Then he became highly interested in the Deming philosophy after a chance introduction to the founder of the British Deming Association, Dr. Henry Neve, who became Balaji's mentor. So it's a very Deming-themed episode, um, but I think there's a lot of interesting history, a lot of insights here in the episode. I think you'll enjoy it. For links and more information, you can go to leanblog.org slash 424. Thanks for listening. Well, hi, welcome to the podcast. Our guest again is Balaji Reddy. He is an independent management consulting professional. He's founder of the Deming Forum of India. So you can probably guess we are going to be talking a lot about the late Dr. Deming and uh, all sorts of topics today. So Balaji, thank you for joining us. How are you? Thank you so much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been uh, uh, one of your secret admirers on LinkedIn, (laughs) and I've been watching your blog post and wow, you know. Good thing once upon a time well, it'd be me. I never thought it would be like this. Thank you so much. Oh well, thank you. You're very kind, and you know, there's there's <laughs> um, so much I want to hear from your experiences and and your perspectives. I mean, you know, including your your time um, or what you've learned from Dr. Deming and, and and working with others from you know the realm of of quality gurus, if you will. But can you share a little bit more you know about your professional background with the, with the audience? Yeah, well, I am an electrical engineering by profession. So I've done my graduation in electrical engineering from, uh, from an institute, an institution here in India, which is very well known. In fact, many of our my our alumni have gone on to complete their masters in the U.S. and our college. Uh, you know, it's one of the oh, they come they come from this college. I think they're on. You know, so that kind of stuff. Because I I, uh, I somehow uh, never had the the drive to. Uh, go abroad to study or to complete my master's. I mean, I just I just uh, decided to stay back here. I went on to, uh, I mean, when I, after I completed my engineering, I got a job in a company that manufactured automotive lamps, automotive headlamps, uh, uh, day lamps, and uh, indicator lamps. And that was, that was the first time I was looking into uh, the quality section. We didn't have a quality department, but we had a quality section. And if, if you know India's history, uh, the whole uh, entire economic uh, uh, outlook changed in 1991 when the then uh, finance minister, who then became our prime minister, just opened up the skies and allowed the whole world to come in and invest in India. And that's when we were introduced to, you know, uh, we, we got used to foreign companies coming in. I we had a very, very clustered kind of an economy. We were happy with the way we were. We, we, we never had any foreign products coming in. And now suddenly we had companies interested. So things changed. And, you know, it was that change that we realized, uh, the company where I worked, that we had to uh, compete on quality and not anything else. And that's when I saw a, a drive. But then I didn't, I think after I completed a year, then I uh, went out to join another company. But there, there they put me into quality. And uh, I then had my first training in Xerox's leadership for quality course. It was a five-day course. 
And I was, I was awestruck at the way they spoke, the training, the tools. And the first thing that struck me was there has to be a beginning. And, and, and I've been a, a big uh, enthusiast about history. Where did it all begin? How did it all begin? So and then came uh, a postgraduate diploma in quality management. And then when we started hearing about the history and I heard the name Deming and then Duran, I don't know, somehow it, it, they just struck a chord with me. It, it seemed personal. It seemed very personal for some reason. And the other connect was that my, my father was in Japan in 1964. That is before I was born. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, I, 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 he, he, uh, he passed away in 1994. So this was uh, before I really got into quality. And, uh, but I know one thing. In the 1980s, when there was this huge, big, influx of Japanese goods into American markets and you know it became a part of folklore what happened in, in America and people woke up to Japan and everything. And people started frequenting my home to meet my father because he was in Japan in 1964 to hear from him the secrets you know of, of Japan. And I remember him telling them, oh then you know you know what ironically they were taught by two Americans. And <laughs> so that, that was stuck and it all fit into place. Did he mean them? And it was only later, two years after he passed on, that I discovered something in his drawer. I uh, I don't know if you'll be able to see any of this. It, it's in such a tattered state. Oh, wow. It's about yeah. quality. It's, it, it's quality, if you can see it. It's quality. And these are his notes from Japan. Oh, wow. And and this was the beginning of, you know, it was uh, it was hair-raising for me to know my father was into quality. <laughs> it was huh. like I was carrying on from where he left off. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. And then uh, later on, I went on to do a master's in the subject. But by that time, uh, of all the books that I read, you know, I mean, um, I had read Philip Crosby and then I read Duran or Duran. Oh, there's so much to read. <laughs> he wrote so much. Um, Crosby was the author of Quality is Free, among other books. Is That's that right? right. I read Quality is Free, Quality Without Tears. And uh, I think quality is still free. And then he had this leadership, this thing about leadership. I forget his, forget the title of the book. It is yellow color, big, big kind of book. You know? And then uh, uh, the, the question thing about quality, there are 99 questions we want to ask. Uh, let's talk quality. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk quality. So these are the books I read of his. And, you know, in parts, they kind of appeal to me. And Juran, of course, was was the master. I mean, he had everything. He, there was no question he did not answer. Uh, and then came Deming. You know, when I started reading Deming, somehow there was a kind of a connect because he didn't give answers. <laughs> he just raised questions. <laughs> yeah. And he wanted you to think. So in, in, in Out of the Crisis, there is uh, one of the chapters where he says, you know, uh, isn't it obvious you need to tell a worker about a defect? that we don't tolerate defects here. We need to tell them. And, <laughs> and then suddenly he goes on to refute that claim. And that was, that was the, you know, the thinking. And I, I said, this man, this man's not easy to understand. <laughs> All right. And uh, so out of the crisis, and then I, I took, it took me, I think, uh, you know, three or four years to figure out what he was saying. And then came the bombshell, the new economics. And that was worse <laughs> than out of the crisis. <laughs> In terms of being thinking. not, Super straightforward, you mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And profound knowledge. I remember, I, I, I just knew I had to understand this even more than out of the crisis. I was trying, and I was getting used to Deming speak by that time, you know, the, <laughs> the, the kind of language that he was using. 
But even then, it took me some time. And so I tried this trick. I gave the book to my wife and I said, now you read out the book to me. And I, and I think let's, let's have a conversation. Mm. And that's when, when she read out a few things, it suddenly struck me what he was trying to say. When he said, when you're in the system, you become the system. You need to break out of the system <laughs> yeah. to understand the system. And I was here outside the system. And I was listening to the book from the outside. I was seeing my wife you know, read out the book to me and suddenly it began making sense. And that was that was the turning point. And then we went. We started having conversations. I remember theory of knowledge. Man, I think I, I must have read that chapter for two two and a half years continuously to to actually get to what he was trying to say. It was it was it was not very direct. Yeah. So that's what attracted me to his work. Yes. So um, I took a few notes. We may go back and and dig deeper into. Um, some of the things you touched on there, Balaji. Um, first off, when you, when you talked about starting in manufacturing, what, what, what's, you distinguished a quality section from a quality department. Could you explain a little bit more about what that difference is in your mind? Okay. For me, a quality department essentially would mean that there is someone in charge and they have few people, you know, there's a separate uh, group of people doing that. You have a little, like a manager and a deputy manager and then, you have the, that's what it used to be, right? You know, inspectors and, and, and well, you know, the, the, the bunch of people there and they're in charge of quality and all that. So that's what we used, what we were used to in India, right? A separate quality department. And so we just had uh, a couple of, couple of guys who used to come and check and that, that was the job. So quality was inspection, right? They used to come in, they used to check what was, that's what I meant that there was, it was not inherent, not the kind of th- stuff that, I'm into right now, okay, right? When we speak about the system and it should start at the top and and you don't need a department, it should be everywhere. You know, that that kind of thinking was not there. That's what I meant by that. And then, yeah, there, there's a really interesting parallel, what you described with India becoming open to foreign competition, including Japan, repeating, uh, you know, what had happened, we'll call it roughly a decade before in the United States. You know, we think of, Dr. Deming and, and the famous NBC documentary program, you know, yeah. if Japan can, why can't we? Which I right. th- was, was that 1980? I mean, it was, it was yeah, early. 1980, yes. Yeah. I mean, so in, in a lot of ways, parallels to India in terms of we, we've got this competition, we, we've been maybe um, protected a bit in our own market. And, and same question applied if Japan can do it, why can't India? Was there similar inspiration or it sounds like similar uh, I, motivation? I, okay. I, I doubt it was something like that. It was just that we were woken up to a different world and it was that we were welcoming. I don't think it was competition. It was that we were welcoming foreigners and we just saw a different perspective of, of things. And I think at that time, even uh, because uh, Suzuki had been in India for some time by then, they came to India in 1982. And it was 10 years by then. And now, you know, uh, they were really growing. So they tied up with this Indian company called Maruti. So Maruti Suzuki. And they brought in these cars. I remember that was, that was, a, that was an amazing car as compared to what we were used to. You know? And it, it, was, it was different. We were welcoming. It was not a competition. I think we looked at it differently. We looked at it, at it as an opportunity to grow. Uh, but, but we were still, you know, uh, there's a lot of mental space. There was a lot of mental blockages about a few things, which I think it took a long time to get used to. At least, at least I can talk from my personal uh, interaction, yes. 
Sure. And did that open up likewise opportunities then for Indian companies to export more to other markets? Yeah, but they were getting done things in India, you know, the made in India kind of thing. And there's another thing that happened. Now, um, you see the, the samples and, and the batches that I think the Indian companies sent at that time, you know, were very good. But the consistency was lacking over a period of time. And so I think the shortcut that people thought uh, to get everyone on par, that let's, let's you know, uh, introduce ISO 9000. So that became a big thing during the 90s in India. Uh, you know, all, every, everyone had, and if you wanted to export, you need to have an ISO 9000 certification. That was that was a must. So every all the companies started going for ISO 9000. That's the first time I heard about ISO 9000 in my life, around 92, 93. I didn't even know what it was. Right, and, and I remember attending a, a program, an introductory kind of a program, and I said, "Okay, this sounds, this sounds very, you know, straight jacketed, but it's it's better than what we're doing right now." That that's the impression I got. In fact, I became an auditor. I became a certified auditor for that ISO nine thousand. So that was that was what was you know was was the, the the entire thing about quality till leadership for quality happened to me, and then. So, I mean, you've talked a little bit about Dr. Deming, and I, you know, I would like to explore more about what you've learned from him and, and talk about the Deming Forum of India. Um, we talk about Joseph Duran. Um, I, I yeah. know he is held in similar um, esteem. Um, is, yeah. I, I think, part of my own gap in my own education or reading. Like, I've poured into Deming a lot right. over the last 30, almost 30 years. I don't think I've read any of Dr. Duran's books. So can, can oh. you share a little bit more about kind of, you know, his influence and what he brings to the discussion that that's maybe similar or, and then what, what might be different or additive to what Dr. Deming would teach or ask about? But yeah, I, I would say Duran wrote with a lot more clarity and meaning. He didn't ask questions. He gave you the answers. But it was it was uh, from a traditional because he rose from the traditional rank, rank ranks of management. I'm I'm too small to speak about all this really. I mean he, he's way beyond everything else. But I'm, I'm, and and uh, the language that he wrote and is so clear and you could see he had a lot to share. And people talk about his um, his handbook. Uh, of course, that was the first book I went through, and I said it's so thorough. But it had you know 28 to 30 other authors as well. Okay, each one you know, authoring a certain section. I would I would say one of the best books that that I've ever read of his, and I would recommend this to anybody who wants to learn Duran, is this book, Managerial Breakthrough. Ah, okay. And I think it's the best, one of the best books ever written uh, by by Dr. Duran on management. I mean, it's not just about quality. I mean, you can see you can see the seeds there, right? Absolutely. But the way he has explained this, because uh, at that point, this was 1964, right? When he wrote this book, mm. and then uh, this is this this edition that I have was the 1995 edition, the 30th anniversary edition. Oh, wow! And, it, and okay. it's special for me uh, because because I, I I had it autographed by him. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and this incidentally was another another something special. It was my first wedding anniversary gift for my wife. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's doubly special. <laughs> she she saw my my you know my passion for both uh, Deming and Duran, and she saw this book, and that was that was amazing. It took me by surprise, and, oh, and I nice. went on to read this book. So that that this book is a classic. 
Now, uh, like I said, he he blazed it out and he demystified the entire craft of managing for quality. He did that, and he did it from the lens of a of a traditional manager. So, in that sense, he was pretty traditional, and uh, you know, uh, he made things. Like I said, I said a lot of clarity, a lot of structure. This is what you need to do. You need to start here. You need to do this. So, I think he he left nothing to chance. Whereas uh, Deming wanted you to have your own method and your own approach. That's the way I look at it. Okay, that he didn't he didn't want to give any any structure. He said, you 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 just have to think differently, and and that's what was was the challenge, right? Uh, uh, he just said, you know, that uh, look at things, but look at things differently. In fact, I remember, um, I think it was Henry Neve. You know, Henry Neve has coached me because that's that's when it all began. Right after all this. I remember that time when I was getting into Deming. Okay, so this uh, you're talking about Juran. Yes, the handbook is a must, but till the fifth edition, post that I don't want to comment um, because it, it's not the way it was. Uh, and his other books, you know, which which are classics: uh, Juran on quality planning and analysis, on leadership for quality, um, quality by design. Uh, well, you name it. I mean, planning for quality. I think uh, planning for quality became quality by design, and then leadership for quality was upper management and quality was uh, originally in Japanese and then translated into English. But this book, I, I, I would, I would still say that you, you know, you, you got to read it to understand the genius of this person, uh, how he, how he created it, and Deming, Deming's, Deming's a challenge. He's, he's really challenges you, right? Yeah, and I've, I've heard that from a lot of people that that if there is common criticism of Dr. Deming is that what he taught didn't always translate well into his own books. I mean, I often recommend there was a book written by, so I mean, Henry Neve wrote a book called The Deming Dimension, which I've heard people yes. recommend. Right, yeah. There's another yes. book, Raphael Aguayo, um, a yes. book written about Deming. And that, like, Correct. honestly, that's the book I recommend to people is you okay. know, for an introduction is somebody else writing about Dr. Deming's principles and, okay. and, and works, okay. but um, there, there are, you know, the different books out there, of course, but. Um, oh yeah. yeah. That's, I, I think he's one of the few people on whom books have been written rather than by him, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. he wrote many books two in management and three in statistics, but many people have written on him. So Raphael, I think uh, was, I, I happened to speak to him once on video uh, we we got chatting about something, and I don't know where we met initially. I think it was LinkedIn that we met for the first time. I mean, I chatted up. I maybe I posted a comment which he just replied to, and he came up with after he after that he wrote another book, right? The meta knowledge uh, that's nothing but profound knowledge. You know, he meted he he put some more meat to it. Yeah. <laughs> the meta knowledge. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I'm gonna go find him on on LinkedIn, and maybe I can uh, convince him to <laughs> yeah. be a guest on here as well. Um, yeah. So when you talk about you know the the things that connected with you very deeply from from Deming and Duran, and you know I want to explore your perspectives on what Dr. Deming taught. I mean, I think if I'm remembering right, at one point Dr. Deming said or wrote that the most important thing for a manager is to understand variation. Now, I also remember him saying the most important thing is understanding psychology, and like you, I guess you can have more than one most important thing. But, but to you, what was the impact of this idea of understanding variation and focusing on reducing variation? Oh, uh, 
I would say all four parts, because he never distinguished, right? All four parts of profound knowledge are equally important. I think he yeah. said that. <laughs> and probably, he said, there's yeah, no yeah. one, you don't need to be an expert in any one of them. And that's the, that's the difficult bit, right? When you start teaching Demi. And he says that all four uh, are equally, and you don't need to be an expert in that. You need to have working knowledge and just about enough. So it, it, it's a way of looking at things around you. I don't see it as a subject or as, as a tool. It's it's something else, and and you can't you can't really uh, explain it. It's it's like you can't uh, you know sometimes the paucity of the English language comes in. You can't really ex- explain what he was trying to say. And I would say that all four uh, areas that he he picked out. Let me let me tell you something about this. Uh, when he was distilling his life's work, all right, and and I mean the fourteen points were were primarily for an, an American audience because I believe he could not he saw that people were not really grasping what he was saying, all right. And uh, it was at Hebert Packard that somebody wrote a list of 10 points that, you know, that, that this is what I've learned from you. And then he added something more. And then at least if you, if you read that, the word statistics came in at least six or seven of them. And then he refined those and made them 14. Okay. Uh, and the birdings became more and more concise and very, very to the point. But that was primarily for an American audience. I don't, uh, he, the Japanese never knew what he was talking about, right? The 14 points never existed for them. And, uh, but when he was putting it all together, it was Myron Tribus, if you know who he was. Dr. I've Myron heard of him, Tribus. yes. Yeah. Oh, he was, he was, uh, well, he was uh, I think, one of the directors at MIT, Massachusetts. And he was brought in, from what I know, this is what I've heard from at least two people, he was brought in to prove Deming wrong. And uh, because he was, he was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant man. And he was brought into Guru Deming wrong. But when he started spending time with Deming, he became one of his greatest uh, you know, proponents. I won't use the word follower. No, he wasn't. But definitely one of his greatest proponents. Yeah. I mean, Dr. And Deming references um, Myron Travis a lot in, in his books. What, what Was there something in particular that he was supposed to try to disprove Deming on or, or just somehow more broadly, like uh, discredit might not be the right word, but disprove. I'm curious. Like, yeah, I wonder because, what that was uh, about. He, he was, he was taking on just about everybody, right? W. Edwards Deming was, was known for, no, that's, that's stupid. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. You know, <laughs> And he just wanted you to think. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who took it badly. There are people who took it well. I think Jim McDonald was one of the people in Ford who initially did not like what he said when Deming, Deming once asked him, what's your job? And he said, I'm vice president of manufacturing. And he said, that's your title. What's your job? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. And then, yeah. And let, later on, he realized, he said, I, I realized what he was getting at. But it, it was unnerving being in front of him. And so, but some, some took it well, like I said, some took it badly. So Myron would, would uh, you know, keep questioning and questioning. And he said, this man always answers a question with a question. He never answered. He never <laughs> gave me answers. Mm-hmm. And one of the times uh, he said, uh, he asked Demi that if you were to put it down, you know, into a few words, what, what would you say your, your, your message to management was? So Deming said, you've, le- you've heard me speak so many times. What do you, you say the message would be? <laughs> yeah. And so Myron said, I went back. And after a week, I came back to him and I said, well, systems, uh, psychology, variation. Deming said, wonderful. Just add theory of knowledge. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and then he showed him the notes that he'd made and theory of knowledge was was there. So uh, Deming said it, it was interactional. So, uh, you know, all four were equally important. And he said, in fact, Henry told me this towards the end of his life, the last two, three programs that he conducted in Europe, he would stand up and say, I'm not here to teach you anything new. I'm here to make you see things that you normally would not see. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And profound knowledge, I believe, makes you see things that you normally would not see. When you see things differently, you ask different questions. Yeah. When you ask different questions, then you get different answers. When you get different answers, you draw different conclusions. When you draw different conclusions, you get different results. When you get different results, okay, that's when things start changing. It's insanity to ask the same questions again and again. Yeah. Yeah. And expect different results. Right. So that's my thing. I think all four are equally important. Yeah. And so when you talk about helping people see what they wouldn't normally see or helping them see differently. Yeah. I think when you talk about things created by uh, HP people, the Red Bead game, as legend has oh, yeah. it, was actually created as a gift for Dr. Deming. And uh, uh, not, not really, not really. The Red Bead game was, was uh, an experiment he conducted uh, in the 1940s to, to teach sampling, All right? And he was teaching that um, uh, during the 1940s. You know, he taught Walter Schuhart's methods. And one of the things, because he's a master of sampling, so he used to teach that. He used to use the red beads to teach that. I have, I have, I have proof here. Uh, the 1950. These are the, this is the 1950 lectures in Japan. Okay, I think I must be one of the few people in the world who has a copy of this book because it has Deming's handwriting on it. And um, the, the um, he calls it as. Let me take you to the chapter where he has written this. So. While while you're looking for that, I mean, part of the history I've heard, and and thank you for filling in some of these details, maybe somebody created more of the the script and the scenario the way Dr. Deming was later using the red bead. Oh, there's a picture of a paddle. Yeah. Yep. Okay. This is the 1950 lectures. So he he was talking about the red beads, but strictly from a sampling perspective, the lessons in management, yes, they came through HP. That came much later. Yeah. Um. So, but I think, you know, back to the, the power of the red bead game, I've seen healthcare executives start seeing things differently from participating hands-on with the game and seeing the, the scenarios and the role-playing. Like the one, I, th- I thought this was a really powerful moment when it was the chief medical officer of a hospital was sitting in the, in the front when we were debriefing and talking about the game and he raised his hand to make a comment first and he said, you know, I think I've learned that all of our safety and quality metrics are red beads. <laughs> Equivalent, right? In terms of like the way they were setting targets and responding and reacting and doing all sorts of things that weren't really changing the system of work, if you will, right. of looking at, you know, the yeah, system is yeah, yeah, created right. to, it's created to give the results it's giving. And, and, and that I've seen that really be powerful for people. Yeah. I have, I have you know, there are a lot of, lot of lessons because I've conducted that experiment myself around, I think 64 times now uh, in total. And it's, and every single time, Mark, it's really amazing. 
it's almost like it's you know history repeating itself the numbers come again and again and i have an explanation for every single number that comes up there what are you doing yeah <laughs> and uh, yeah incidentally i had the same kind of experience that dr deming had about using a, a wooden paddle and then an acrylic one right the wooden paddle was gifted to me by uh, by henry nee and henry uh, said that this is one of the paddles that deming had used i don't have it with me right now but uh, that then then of course later on i started using an acrylic one and like deming mentions in 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 his in the lessons of the red beads and uh, he says that you know what should it settle down to the average right what should it settle down the number of red beads because you know that it's 20% projected yeah so, so it should so settle the, down to 10 to right 10. but he said but with a wooden paddle i had 11.6 and with the acrylic paddle it's 9.4 now what do you say to that all right <laughs> well, said, he, so not not a big enough sample size yet or uh, you know. <laughs> no he would say that's the difference you see there is no such thing as random sampling he said this is mechanical mm. sampling sure and sure. that's why they're always that's the system at work right you can yeah. never tell you know are these red beads uh, originally white beads dipped in red <laughs> are they are they red made dipped in white what what, what are we looking yeah. at here because that's going to change everything yeah. with with the paddle Right. I'm, I'm still, I, I can still hear you. I'm going to move off camera for a second. So I've always used um, a metal paddle that I had. And then oh, I okay. had this made, um, this, this plastic. This is actually 3D printed. Oh. And okay. there's, there's somebody, um, what's his name? It's on here. Kevin Civic. Um, as with many 3D printing designs, you can go and download the design. And then you can print it yourself. I don't have a 3D printer. So... I had a company print one for under $20. And in some places, okay. pe people could go to their public library and upload that file and print it probably even uh, cheaper than that. So there's, there's my, yeah. my new paddle. Wow. So Alan Pippinger makes these, uh, uh, Alan Pippinger, if you know him, Deming Cooperative. Uh, not Cooperative, <laughs> sorry. What's it, what's it called? The Deming, I forget it. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, oh my God! Why am I forgetting this? But he he makes he makes a nice he makes a neat uh, Deming uh, beat kit the red beat kit. Uh, Tony Doctor Tony Burns has come up with something amazing. It's it's augmented reality De Deming red beads, and you could do it. Hmm. Uh, it's like an app. virtual it's, reality or through your phone augmented reality. Yeah, yeah, you that's, can use it on a phone, and you can do it with three, four, with you know the same number of people all over the world, and you can connect on the same thing. It's an app. You download hmm. it. And you can use that. So it's Interesting. brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I'll look yeah. that up. He's, he's in Australia, right? That's right. He's, he's in Australia. That's correct. Yeah. Dr. Tony Burns. I'll, I'll, I'll look that up uh, for sure. Um, so, you know, there, there are the, you know, all these different lessons for the Red Bead game. And, yep. you know, I think this one idea of not blaming individuals for system-driven results to me, right. connects to an idea that's often associated with Toyota, um, this idea of uh, respect for people or respect for humanity. And I know from when we talked before, you said this is something Dr. Deming was talking about a long time ago. If you can tell us more about that. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, after I think his earliest stint in Japan, he used to go back I think, annually for the Deming Prize and, and things like that. And I think he continued traveling for quite some time but he also wrote a lot of papers 
which he was he was trying to i think uh, come out with what we could today call as profound knowledge but he was he was using of course uh, you know I, i i can understand coming from a statistical background and that was a new science and so he was trying to promote that so between 50 and 1975 there's a bunch of papers that he wrote and in fact it's intriguing that he kept on talking about people and people and people and if you ever get to see those papers they are available on the on the deming website www.deming.org and if you go to the papers they're there for the, for the download but they're they scanned from the from the uh, original journals so they appear in the same print that are there. so you may have to you know enlarge and read some of those and uh, the print may not be good but but the matter and then then he speaks a lot about people need to be you know people are important and people need to be looked at and there should be a structure in fact uh, i don't know whether i have the the text right now but he said at, at the end of the eight day course that he gave in japan uh, he said this is but a part of you know what you can do there's so much more you can do there's so much more you have to do and remember that this is that there are many other systems at work and he said that uh, that this is the first time someone in the world is going to be doing something like this it's never been done before so i wish you well he says that <laughs> <laughs> so he always had this thing and he asked them to to he said you have to work with your suppliers you know you have to work with the, with the consumer um, and he said it was a logical thing for me to say to them that they have to be as good as you are so i think the whole concept of uh, working together cooperation was the key and uh, one of the notes i found in his diary was uh, you know that statistics uh, shall be taught by someone else and i'm going to teach them theory of a system and i'm going to teach them cooperation i mean these are his words so i think it was it was more about uh, working together and suppliers are not apart from the organization they are a part of the organization so i think that that was that was important what he spoke to them uh besides of course the technique the technical stuff which you know statistics and oh, well i think there are a lot of literature available in any case uh, you know they had become common knowledge at that time he just put it all together i think he had them put them put that together yeah and that's why i think like you know sometimes people describe dr deming as a statistician i'm like i don't i don't that that word doesn't <laughs> that doesn't capture it right yeah <laughs> it does much more uh, uh, yeah. even if you read his books on sampling and i think he talks a lot about theory incidentally a lot of the stuff i was reading the other day uh, some theory of sampling and there's a beautiful reference to uh my friend dr jurani <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, yeah that that's what i want to see I and mean, contrary to belief you know they were they were they were very respectful of each other and uh, and in fact uh, some of the some of the things he's written about him and and in, and juran attributes the fact that he knew nothing about japan till deming introduced uh, him to the japanese he said i had mm-hmm. no clue this was 1952 when deming brought the japanese to the american society for quality annual meet and they made a presentation on what they had learned from deming and that's when uh, and jiran had just written his his handbook 1951 and deming had gifted that to to the japanese and said you need to meet with him hmm. and then he 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 introduced and dr jiran said that my friend w edwards deming introduced me to the japanese i had no clue before that had if i associated japan with with junk the, hmm. the, the stuff that came that, out that of that was it. the reputation then, yeah of course, 
And then he went uh, uh, two years later, but he, and he said he planned the visit beautifully. So, you know, the, the, the notes he said in, he sent in bands and things like that. So, uh, yeah, so he was talking a lot. Demi was talking a lot about people. And of course, Duran gave them the structure that, you know, the concept of a council and then they invented the circle. So that, that was interesting. You know, I think mm. that, that was when the evolution really began with the 1960s. The Japanese started getting out on their own, right? They were getting the lessons. Mm. And you mean uh, by the circle, what's often referred to and still referred to there as quality circles. Yes, QC circles, they call it as QC circles. So council came from Duran and he said that you need to have a cross-functional and a cross-hierarchical team and and then they meet and then they they take up an issue and when it's done, you disband. And then a new team takes their place and takes up the next one. He said that that this this should re- keep repeating ev- because everyone should be involved, and then they created their own concept of circle that the circle sustains it, the council initiates it. But I think the rest of the world got it all wrong. They got it all wrong. In fact, people everywhere in the world they think that you initiate everything through a quality circle. I'm sorry, you initiate it through a council, and then you sustain it through a circle. That's the way you should look at it. I have never that that's that's new to me. So that's part of what's been oh. propagated. <laughs> um, I because I, even when in in recent years in Japan, I've I've visited companies that are very proud of their um, QC circle activity, as they'll often call it, and those those teams that may be together for six months. And so that's actually what you or what what you're saying is a, a QC council. The circle is an ongoing. Yeah, and the council group. is is yeah. The, the circle bit, from what I understand, what what Dr. Juran and and Dr. Ishikawa, because he's the one who brought that in, right? The circle concept, because he said that you see what happened was I think the councils which were established in 1954. That's what Dr. Juran gave them, uh, and I think over the next six seven years, that's what Dr. Uh, Dr. Ishikawa noticed. Every single person in Japanese industry had served on a council more than once. So they were aware of, of, of the know-how and they knew why they were supposed to do things. So everyone from the highest level to the lowest level. And that's when, and then they started having, I mean, they had magazines, but they started having radio programs on quality and what have you, right? And the Deming Prize ceremony was broadcast on primetime television and things like that. And that's when I, I believe he thought that let, let's let's just take this to another level. So at, at an informal level, you get together and you let let's let's sustain what we've learned during uh, our tryst with the quality council, and let's try to do it in a small way here, so that we don't we don't rust, right? And so that bit started getting uh, sort of propagated. And at the same time, they would be a part of the council. They would get a chance to be on the team, and if there would be something going on there, you know, there was a cross. Uh, learning that was going like a pollination going on. I think that's what really happened. And and I think we, uh, the people outside of Japan have not really grasped that. The Japanese are as cryptic as anybody else. They're not that clear, right? If you ask them, uh, you know, if they see that you're really good and you're grasping something, then they very quickly open up and tell you everything. But otherwise, they would, uh, you know, you ask them stupid questions, you get silly answers, right? What, what's that? Well, well, that's this. Okay, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so there's there's cultural differences, and then yeah, it's hard to tell sometimes what's cultural difference versus translation. Oh my goodness, issue. Lots of uh, yeah, there's a huge issue, 
I, I, I've seen it with Japanese words, with, uh, I mean, seeing things like kaizen and, and, and gemba. I mean, you, you can't translate those words into English. Forget that. You can't even translate the word guru in, in doing that. Guru is from my country, all right? So tell the us, I was going to ask from, you about this. Um, what, what The word guru gets thrown around a lot, Deming and Duran and um, uh, others might be um, called gurus. But what, t- tell us more about the, the origin and the history and the real meaning of that word. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's a metaphor. In fact, most of, of the language which is spoken in, in the Orient is metaphorical, right? There are 10,000 meanings to a single word and there are contextual meanings to a single word. And you can't just say guru, you, know, you, you can't translate and say it's a teacher. No. Now, it, I may sound a little stupid and abstract here, but this is the best way to explain it, all right? Apparently, when, when God created all uh, everyone, I mean, that, that's, you know, we say the angels, the demons, the the, the the animals and the humans, right? Um, he created everyone equal and gave them equal powers and said, you know, here it is. This is what you need to live and go get, go live a good life. Now, what happened was quite funny. The angels were the only ones who understood the real you know, worth of these powers. And so they were judicious about them. The demons, they were quite excited about it, but they could be tamed by the angels. The animals, right? The animal kingdom, they had no clue about these powers. They didn't even know they existed. But the humans were the worst. They had ended up abusing the powers, sort of using it for the wrong reasons. And that's when apparently God get, gets very concerned and calls every, you know, calls the angels and say, You're the only ones who understood. Look, look at what these guys are doing, right? This guy knows, these guys know nothing, but look at look at the humans. Look at what they're doing. So what do we do? So the angels said, you know, take away all the powers. And God says, No, I can't take away the powers. Because once I give them, you know, I, I can't take it away. So what do we do? He said, let's hide these paths. Okay, so where do we hide these paths? And let's hide them way on top of a mountain. So he said, uh, uh, they said, no, you can't do that because this, this, the humans are very inquisitive. They'll climb the mountain and they'll find the paths. Okay, let's hide it in the depths of the ocean. So no, they're very inquisitive. They'll go there and find it again. But what the hell do we do? Said, let's hide it inside of them. We we'll hide it inside of them and then keep searching their whole life for the past. Uh, instead the of looking unlocks the past. Yeah. The person who unlocks the past is the guru. So the guru is not the teacher. The guru helps you realize who you are. Mm. And so we have this, this, this whole concept in our in our in our part of the world, in our country. We can never get better than the guru. So all this crap that I keep hearing about is, you know, the Japanese got better. Than, they would never think like that. Absolutely not. Deming Juran were their gurus because they helped them discover who they are. So that would never go away. I mean, I'll give you an instance here. Okay? I mean, there's, there's this game in India, which is very famous, called cricket, if you heard about it. It's, it's a craze in this country. And there's a very, very, very famous uh, player in India by the name, uh, well, Sachin. I'll, I'll just stick to that. And Sachin is like, like the god of cricket here. But he always went to his guru <laughs> and, and his guru never played a single game for our country in the and this man played has played more games than anybody else for our, you know in the world for that matter but he always went to his guru and, and and paid his respects so that was that that's the case that's the way you know we've been brought up so we never say we get better than the guru a guru is someone who shows you the way he, he you know who, who helps you discover who you are shows you here you go and then you you just grow from there and who decides that you're better than the guru? Only the guru decides that, not anybody else. <laughs> that's the way we look at it. So, yep, that, that's that's one big misconception I see here. 
So you can't just use that word loosely for anybody and everybody. He's a guru. That's a guru. Sorry, please. <laughs> there may be some good teachers. <laughs> but. I mean, there's maybe a similar discussion is going back to a Japanese word, sensei. Um, ah, yeah. I, you know, I, I might choose, uh, there are people I will refer to as sensei, but that's, 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 that's me bestowing that upon them. Um, that doesn't mean somebody gets to say they are a sensei. Like it's all directional. Yes. Now I think of like, um, you know, uh, John Shook from Toyota and the Lean Enterprise Institute. I would say John Shook is a sensei, but then there are people to whom he would call sensei. Good. John is John is not sensei to the people who taught him at Toyota, for example. They may respect they, they would respect him, but that's different than mm-hmm. you know that different different use of that word sensei. Right. Or I, I I think of um, Peter Drucker, who often gets put into that same Mount Rushmore of management gurus, <laughs> yes. if you will. Um, Eric Reese, I don't know if you're familiar with him. I've interviewed him. He's the author of books including the lean startup and the startup way. And he, and he shares the story because Eric sometimes will get called, Oh, he's guru of lean startup. And I, I presume this is true. Or, you know, he says, you know, well, Peter Drucker, you know what Peter Drucker said about gurus is that they call you a guru because they can't spell the word charlatan. Which is <laughs> <laughs> That's so Peter Drucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't have the yeah. book. I don't have the exact reference to footnote that, but that's a, a wonderfully self-effacing way of, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that. yeah. Um, so I, I want to ask a little bit about, uh, the Deming forum of India and hear a little yeah. bit about some of, um, you know, the, uh, the history and, and what you do today. And then if you can share some examples of, you know, um, nowadays working with um, India, Indian companies, India-based companies. I, in in my travels, I haven't had the chance to come to India, so I've never personally been able to visit Indian companies. Like if we look at you know here in this decade of the 2020s, um, what does the Deming Forum bring to to Indian companies? And I, I know I'm asking three questions all together here, so I'll apologize for that. Let me, <laughs> let me step back and say, well, tell us about the Deming Forum of India and um, how that yeah. came to be. Yeah, so, uh, yeah that came to be uh, when I was teaching at, at, the, at this college. And uh, at the same time, I saw this interest in Deming grow, right? Uh, it was happening. And then we had 1998, where the first time an, an Indian company won the Deming Prize, which opened the floodgates here. And so the awareness about Deming had, had, was take, was was really growing. So 1999, I just went on to found this. It was called the Deming Forum India, and then I changed it to just recently the Deming Forum of India. So it was primarily aimed at getting these points across, but unfortunately, it uh, uh, people misunderstood, you know, and thought that this was a consultancy for the Deming Prize. So I kept getting calls about the Deming Prize, and I said no. I'm not dealing with that. I'm dealing with Deming, Dr. Deming's philosophy. And so they said, how is that different? I said, it's very different. It's not, they're not the same, you know. You may have been the Deming Prize, but understanding the Deming philosophy is much, much deeper. And uh, I look at it as, as a, you know, a ways and means of uh, getting people to at least be aware of what is happening. So if you go and check outside of Japan, the highest number of Deming Prize winners in the world come from India. Hmm. Right. Okay. The, wow. the, yeah, the sheer number of companies that have won the Deming Prize, and they all say it's it's a spiritual journey 
But I think it's more about getting, you know, uh, from what I see, many of them are so focused on getting the prize that I don't think they've really gotten deep into. Maybe they, they have a lot of respect for Deming and the see, but they limit that to the 14 points. And that's what really irritates me. So I'm trying to break that, okay? Trying to get people really aware. So there are a couple of pe- things that have happened <clears throat> in, in between 2004 and 2009. Uh, there was this gentleman who was working with Indian Railways and he got me involved. Uh, Mr. Arvind Mathur, his name. And uh, he... He gave me this chance to speak to some of the top people in Indian Railways. And I saw a lot of things happening there, a lot of good things happening. But uh, as is the case here, you know, when you when the when the, the railway ministry, that is, it, it's all politically motivated, right? If the railway minister, if he loses the election and then everything that he set up all goes, you know, they just, they just stop doing what he was doing. And that's exactly what happened. So those five years were quite amazing. And then... Um, managed to reach, you know, the rail wheel factory and the coach factory and uh, their training centers and uh, even uh, the financial. I mean, we came to the financial uh, uh, and, and the chief accounts officer. They, they got interested in that in the Western Railway. So a lot of things happened, but it was left midway, okay? Uh, just around, I think, two, three years ago, we tried to rekindle that. And again, there was interest, but um, it, it's, just, it's just remained dormant. But in industry, I keep getting these calls. So I decided to focus on um, academia. I said, let's let me let me train students. Now I didn't realize what what actually happened was that the students came with absolutely no baggage. They took to this like a fish takes to water, uh-huh. 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 and that was exciting. That's been really exciting all these years. And many of uh, the students now are attaining positions in their companies where they can actually do things. Many of them, in fact, ironically, they get chosen to be a part of the Deming Prize team because they know more about Deming than anybody else in the company. But then they're using that to get things forward. So I'm just waiting. I've said this before, you know, that uh, you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but you can never count the number of apples in a seed, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just throwing the seeds around. I mean, I think things will happen. Um, and some companies are taking interest. There's a company in India, whom I'm uh, kind of, we meet once a week on Zoom on a Zoom call, and uh, uh, the owner of the company he's totally into Deming, and he he started out with the Deming Prize bit, and uh, he contacted someone from the Deming Institute, and they said there's a person in India. Why don't you talk to him? So that's how it started. And I said, look, uh, if you're for the Deming Prize, I think you're knocking on the wrong. No, no, no. I want to learn about Deming and you tell me what I need to do. And I said, okay, let's meet and you tell me what you understand about Deming. And that's what happened. The first meeting, this is amazing. Two hours, Mark, two hours, he made a presentation in front of me on the 14 points and where he stood vis-a-vis the 14 points. At the end of it, I said, you know, this is not it. (laughs) There's more to it. There's more to it. Yeah, yeah. What, there's 18 so, points now? No, there's more. <laughs> so, and I told him about profound knowledge. And when we started all of that the next day, he was eyes and ears. And it was, it was, it was a path, I mean, it was really mind bending. I love to see that in the eyes of the people when they start realizing a few things. You know, I saw this happen so many times during the, the tryst with, with the Indian railways where I met some, some of the top people. And on the first day, they would be very skeptical and 
don't teach us anything that we already know, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then by the it would be a three-day program. By the end of the second day, it was it was all coming together. You know, by the time I'd introduced profound knowledge, you know, I'm saying, my God, this is something different. We didn't expect this. And I don't know the dread beads, of course, was used to be bigger by the end of the first day, right? I uh, we introduced the red beads. That that was an eye-opener for some of the people, and they say, Yeah, okay, we, we're getting what you're getting at. Some of them would go along with the role play and have fun, you know. Uh, because uh, in India, we we do suffer from this uh, kind of sometimes we take things a little too seriously, you know. The sense of humor kind of goes somewhere. <laughs> Henry over in India, when he was trying to do the Red Beads experiment, is that understood? <laughs> We're nice. The 9,000 company here, we follow procedures. Is that understood? You put in the battle at 44 degrees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. People would think that, oh my God, why is he shouting at me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I have seen people, um, you know, here in, in the US and other countries, um, they f- they know it's it's just a game, but people get competitive and they get upset when they get a lot of red beads <laughs> and, 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 and people do get drawn into it in a way that's hard to explain sometimes. It goes beyond role playing. Like they're feeling and experiencing something deeper than that when they when they're participating. Some of them actually, you know, are just staring. What did I do wrong? You know, and when I call, and I call the employee of the month. I remember once there was this this student of mine, this girl, and she says, "Why exactly did I win employee of the month? Can you tell me?" <laughs> <laughs> you had the best results. Simple. She was, I was doing qu- just exactly what the rest were doing. You know, why are you, why are you shouting at them? <laughs> yeah. People, people get it. And, and, that, and that game gives them a perspective and language to talk about. Maybe yeah. now when they see similar situations, you know, sometimes the red bead game role playing is exaggerated, but it proves a point. And then people start seeing this behavior in meetings of like, wait a minute, why are we spending so much time talking about why last month's data point is lower than the month before? We yeah. each just sit and do nothing. And I bet it fluctuates back a little <laughs> bit better, but we'll take credit for that because, you know, we talked about it. Um, yep. Very powerful. Um, so, you know, here, here in the year 2021, which, you know, like what, what do you think is the the most powerful or most meaningful contribution of the Deming philosophy to Indian companies? And from your experience, are, are there things, are there unique properties of Indian or India-based companies? I think in India, we, we have the mindset to understand and use Deming well. But right now, I think they're pretty much consolidating, uh, you know, trying to be um, self-sufficient and Still, it's on the productivity bit. I don't think we really, really get into the, we've gotten into that, that phase where I'm, I'm quoting Dr. Duran again, that we are in the century of, of productivity. We've not yet reached the century of quality, right? So I think that's what's happening here. And when, when people really, but because uh, when you read profound knowledge more and more, it's, it's got this spiritual side to it, which, uh, which I think is, is, you know, we as, as, a, as a people are very spiritual. So I think it would appeal if it's if it's taught the right way. It would appeal to people right here, and I can see that happening in in the in the colleges. And now with this company which I'm dealing with, they're slowly getting into it, and I think that it'll it'll take shape. It, it all it takes is you know one one good day, one good uh, one good event, and everything will start changing. So till then, you know, just peg away. And that, that's the way I look at it. And here, you know, um, 
the Deming Institute, Henry, they've all been so helpful. I mean, whatever uh, resources, right? Uh, right now, Kevin Cahill, you know, Dr. W. Mm-hmm. Edwards Deming's grandson. I've interviewed him. Yeah. 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 He, he's taking that forward and he's, he's getting all the resources in place and making things affordable, um, you know, getting Deming online, Deming next, keeping things digital. I think that's that's going to be the next big thing happening uh, slowly. So resources are going to be there uh, at at a price, of course, but uh, you don't get things for free. But affordable, you know, is is what he's making it. And uh, Henry, of course, has gone to the other extreme. He put his entire effort into creating this magnum opus of his called 12 Days to Deming. And he's offered it completely free uh, for anyone to download and read. Uh, and do it uh, by themselves and if they need any kind of coaching or something said get back to him and and it was it was it was something that uh, you know I I was I was trying to write about Deming here in India and uh, in 2012 okay I uh, there's this this friend of mine and he writes for you know in India we have the different states have different languages I don't know whether you know this but we're, we're a unique country there's no there's no country like this in the world right where you have uh, 35 different languages and that too officially there are more than 200 other languages but anyway so coming to here uh, you know um, so in in the in the state that I live in okay we have a colloquial language it's called Marathi and he's a very good writer so he he was intrigued about Deming and then he said uh, would you like to do a series of articles on Deming we'd write it every other Sunday so 26 uh, short articles but I had to write them in very simple English, which he would then translate. Now, I told you it's very difficult to translate. So he, he used to read it, then he used to call me up and then he used to have a discussion and then he used to translate it. So I had to be as simple as I could. And then uh, those articles, um, when, when Henry wrote to me saying that he was doing 12 days to Deming and he was getting to it, I said, I just sent him all those articles. I said, I don't know if you find this, uh, you know, useful. Useful? He, he just went on to keep it as a separate section. And he said, these are contributions. And he took me by surprise, contributions of Balaji Reddy. As he gave it a separate section. In fact, there are some parts of the course that he says, oh, wow. read this. And, and, and then so I, I was dumbfounded, to say the least. But, That's so, nice. Yeah, so he, he's really put it all together. It's around a thousand pages, if you look at that. <laughs> a thousand. Huh. Uh, let me show yeah. you how big it is. It is a magnum opus, yes. Oh, it is a magnum opus. It's the biggest, fattest book on Deming ever written. Um, and I think I'm, I have the only print version of it here. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and it says there with contributions from Balaji Reddy. Right yeah. That's what his... he wrote. That Nice. That right on the cover. That's very nice. <laughs> so um, that's, that's what, of course, this is not the official cover and all that. He, he, uh, he, he didn't quite, I think it didn't strike him much. So he wanted it more to do with the, the sketch of Deming that, you know, he got from an artist once, which he liked very much. He thought he wanted, want to use that is that the so sketch think, that's on the cover of the deming dimension correct that's the one yeah yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put so links that, to all of these books and yeah, that yeah. Is so. um in the show notes for the episode i'll make sure that there are links to um all of the books the deming institute the free downloads and and papers and um yep, and yep, the yep. website yeah and um the, the deming forum of india has its own website i presume uh, no, we're a bit. Uh, I'm just constructing that. I did have a website, but it was um, hacked into. Uh, um, ooh, I, I was quite upset at what 
what there what was put up there and so i just tore it down yeah and then i had a problem with with the the where i'd hosted this um, and then of course i i managed to retrieve everything because i own that domain right so there was a bit of a problem uh, but yeah everything's been sorted so i'm getting that website and now i have a very professional person doing the website someone who tells me you know nothing about this yeah that's the one <laughs> that, that's my daughter and so she's been doing this <laughs> and she's going to make sure it doesn't get hacked well yeah she she works she she's with uh, she's doing her masters at at emerson in boston so she's handling that website so she's i know what it is you know nothing about these things <laughs> okay <laughs> Uh, humbling but uh, yep (laughs) well but people can find you on linkedin is one way they can connect with you and see what you're sharing and and posting there yeah i i um i don't know i just react sometimes to a few uh, things sometimes it's, it's very rare that i comment i like some of the things i just leave a note there i think bob emiliani is it who 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 writes a lot about this Mm-hmm. Bob, right? Bob, Professor, Bob yeah, yeah, Bob. He, yeah, yeah. And I've oh. I've interviewed Bob here a number of times. I don't think I pronounced his name right, right? Bob Emiliani, yeah, Emiliani. Okay, yeah, yeah. And um, well, yeah, there are a few. There's David Hutchins from from Great Britain, right? And uh, yeah, we we have. I mean, I, I we share messages, uh, private messages, a lot. Not so much because when I see some of his quotes, of course, I do write a comment there. Because he's got that that, uh, that amazing British sense of humor, you know. I, mean, I remember there was this this guy who someone wanted to do a research on uh, <laughs> research on what? Ishi- I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Ishikawa said ninety five percent of the problems in quality can be solved by these seven tools, and he said, "Let me do a research. My research shows that only twenty five percent can be solved." You, I mean, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So. So he, he was, David was trying to convince, you know, that, uh, hey, look, look, pal, you know, I worked with Dr. Ishikawa and uh, he meant that you would see most of the time that your thinking would be there and these tools are just a way to make you think. No, you mean to say he said that? Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I just said, David, you know, I think it's not, it's not 95, it's it's maybe it's 87.43, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How many decimal points can you take that to? Um, it's a similar thing with the number that gets thrown around with Dr. Deming of what percentage of problems are caused by the system. Is it 93? Oh. Is it 97? Is it 85? The number itself doesn't matter. Matter, exactly. Or it's fact, unknowable. Uh, it's unknowable, exactly. The unknown and the unknowable. Yeah, He always but, said that. The vast majority, we can maybe just um, leave it at that. Yes. Yes. Well, and I think uh, maybe we'll we'll leave the conversation um, at that for now. But Blaji, thank you so much. This has been really nice thank to hear you so much, Mark. <laughs> your perspectives and and some of the history and um, and bringing um, you know some of these um, luminaries uh, to light that people might not know of. You've inspired me um, to to take a look at um, Dr. Duran's work and. Be interesting to look at that from um, today's perspective and um, look and see where the influences from his work um, start becoming clear in the work of others that I've learned from. So thank you for sharing all that. Thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. Um, maybe uh, maybe we can do another episode someday. We can take a deeper dive into um, 
one of these topics or we'll leave it up to you. But this has been nice. Hopefully we can we can do it again. Well, I'd be delighted. More than delighted. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.